Lord, we just come before you and we ask that you bless this time as we look at the, this book and show us what you would have us to see from it and a very powerful chapter in, in, the, in the prayer of Daniel and in the 70 weeks. I just ask you lead and guide as we look at this in your son's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Artaxerxes of, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years thereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So we're going to stop there just for a moment because we've got a historical setting and, a, and just a little point that is usually overlooked on this, this book. The, the historical is the first year of Darius, the son of Artaxerxes. And if you remember who Artaxerxes is, he is the king in the book of Esther. So Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, Xerxes. Uh, so we see him already in a, another book, and we know that he is that he married Esther, uh, and we don't know the Darius, you know, who his mother is, but you know because the Ahasuerus would have had many wives and many children, so. But it is just a, a point to bring out that this is somebody that had, would have had some influence from Esther and the Jewish uh, family. So we just want to bring that out. And he's of the seeds of the Medes. And he is, he is ruling over Chaldea, the Chaldees, which is that whole area uh, that uh, Babylon existed in. And then the next part is, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books. This indicates that Daniel was always studying scripture, okay? Because uh, the books he's referring to in this particular case is Jeremiah, but he was studying. And we want to keep in mind that this is one of the few times where somebody really talks about having studied the scriptures. And this goes to tell us he was wise, he was understanding, he knew God, and he studied the word. And Daniel, uh, David talked oftentimes about studying the word and the value of the word. And the Psalms are just full of this, the scriptures that say study, get to know. And in the New Testament, we're really encouraged to study and get to know. But in the, in the, in the Pentateuch, they were told to read the scriptures, know the scriptures. Uh, Moses told the king, said that when you have kings, the king is to write his own copy of the law so that he would be able to read it in his own residence. And it becomes obvious that the kings did not do this. As you go through the history and Chronicles and Kings, you find, you find out that they did not do what they were told to do according to the law. But this whole idea of meditating on the word, keeping it in front of our eyes and being aware of it. Here we see an example of uh, Daniel doing this. And the particular verses he was reading are in Jeremiah 25. Starting at verse 11, and this whole land shall be, be a desolation and an astonishment, and, and the nation shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says the Lord, for their iniquity and the, and the land of Chaldeans and will make it a perpetual desolation. So 
Babylon was cursed and made into a desolate area. And if you look at the pictures of that area of Iraq where Babylon now and Iran, that whole area where that exists is pretty much barren desert other than the cities that prop up. So it, it is something that has been there and, and that prophecy was fulfilled that they became a desolation and, and uh, went forward from there. Uh, and he also was re could have been reading Jeremiah 29, and we'll look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years are be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know my thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an unexpected, uh, give you an unexpected end, excuse me. So God says, 70 years and I will return you because I have good for you, is what he was telling the people. So Daniel's reading along. He's been there for about 70 years at this point in time. And he's realizing it's time for us to go home. You know, and this is very important because when Daniel read this, he looked at it as being literal. And this is something we've been covering on Sunday morning as we're going through Genesis. There's so many people that want to say you can't take the Bible literal. Uh, they'll, they'll give you all kinds of reasons. When I was studying hermeneutics, which was how to, how to study and interpret the Bible, the very first rule we were, were taught is if it makes sense in, in its literal format, you take it literally. Now, if it's obviously a poetic statement or a hyperbole or... You know, it's obvious in the text that it's not literal. Then you take it in its poetic sense. But when you look at the scriptures, you first look at them and say, is it literal? Can it be literal? And if it is, you take it literal. And this is what I said when I started doing the book of Daniel, uh, Revelation. Revelation to me is a pretty simple book because a lot of it is a literal occurrence. Now, there is symbolism in them, and most of the symbolism is explained in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah. So when you find something that has to be taken as, a, as an image or as a symbol, then you go back and you say, what does the symbol mean? And when you realize what the symbol means, and the Bible tells you what most of the symbols mean, you go back and you apply the symbol, and it makes sense in a very literal sense. So... This is something you want to do. Another way they will say that is, is if the plain sense makes perfect sense, seek no other sense, is one of the little statements they use in, in hermeneutics. You know? So if, it, if what it says plainly makes some sense, then you don't have to go digging for what is the special hidden knowledge in, this, in, this, in, these, in these words. Yeah, when Jesus spoke in parables, uh, did he preface all of them by telling everyone that it was a parable? You know what? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I mean, I've never thought about it. Sometimes he did. I know sometimes, but I don't know that he always did. There's a lot of people that question you. They say, well, that's just a story or, or something like that. It's, it's important to distinguish between a parable and, you know, another type of story or, or well, the thing, means that we're using. The thing that we do know when Jesus tells a parable, he then tells the disciples sometime thereafter the meaning of the parable because they asked him what does it mean yeah. so when he tells a parable there's a definition of what what it means given to the disciples so i think we pretty much know when he's telling parables when he's using a parable because he goes back and he explains the 
the parable to the disciples because it was for the, as he said, it was for them to know what the parables meant. So by the explanation, that's his definition of a parable then. If it's explained to you or no. Well, a parable is anything that has a meaning that is beyond what the story is. Uh, like when Jesus told the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That story to them was very well known. It was not even an unknown story to them, but he twisted the end of the story because in the end of the story, the father would always take back the, the son, but he would take him back as a servant, not bring him back as a son. So they were following the story. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know this story. We know this story. We know this story. We understand this story. And then all of a sudden he gets to the end and he says, the father runs, which a, a Middle Eastern father would never run. And he hugs his child and, and just brings him back as a son. And they're going, no, no, wrong ending. You know, that would be like us you know, telling the story of the boy who cries wolf. And then we get to the end of the story and, and, he, and he cries out a wolf and the whole, the whole village shows up to kill the wolf. You know, that, we would go, no, that's not the way that story goes. You know, it's, uh, so they understood the story. They knew the story. And Jesus did this often with the parables. He told them stories they knew and twisted the end of it to be something totally different from what they expected. The, the stories that they claim or uh, precede the biblical stories, I mean, that's their take, you know. There's a lot of people who are trying to say that a lot of the stories in, in Jesus' day were pre-told. Pre now, there's a lot of stories in religions that have a, the death of their God and a resurrection, but they're all, almost always tied to the agricultural seasons. So the death, the, the death comes in winter and in spring everything is resurrected. So they're not really the picture of Jesus. There's a handful of them out there that may be stories that, that a son is born to a God and dies and resurrects, resurrects most honest scholars believe that they're all agricultural stories. But even if they're not, Satan knew the story of Jesus and what was going to happen, that he was going to die and, you know, and come back to life. So it would not be a very surprising thing at all for Satan to put the story of Jesus before he was born, because God had already said that it was going to happen. Now, the sociologists won't like that argument, you know, won't like that argument at all for something like that happening ahead of time, but I have no problem with it, because the story, as we said two weeks ago, is this resurrection and the death of Jesus was already planned before the foundation of the world. Satan could have even known it before the creation of man, you know, when, you know and, he, and he fell because he didn't know the whole story, but he knew enough of it to know what was planned. So it, it's very questionable. And the, first, the first question is, are these quote unquote sons of the gods actual death and resurrections or are they the cycles of the agriculture, which most of them end up being, uh, or just the days, you know, the sun chases the moon, you know, and they, and you, a lot of, a lot of cultures have that being a religious thing and they chase each other. And so one is dying and coming back the next day. And then, so you get this constant cycle of resurrections and deaths in their stories. And that is what most of the stories that talk about the resurrection and death are about. If there's any, again, I'm not bothered if there is any religion out there that says that they have a son of the God dying and, and rising again because Satan already knew the plan, so it doesn't surprise me at all that he would put the lie out there 
ahead of time. Look into most of them, they're, they're agricultural or, or solar events. So, and they're calling them resurrections and uh, deaths and resurrections, but they're on a cycle. So they're not really the same, not even close to the same thing as what Jesus did, dying, being seen dead, and being ro and raising again, and being seen as, as risen. And this is the problem that we're having now with uh, people being able to do research on the internet and everything. They find these half stories, and they go off thinking they've got, well, see, here's a, here's a death and resurrection story. Oh, yeah, but look at it. It happens every single year. This is not what Jesus did. D Jesus didn't die every year for us and, and, and resurrect. It, we need to dig deeper into those things to say, is what, is what this person's saying even true? There's a lot of bad scholars, scholarship out there. Uh, we have all these people, especially since the Da Vinci Code came out and said there's all these books out there that the Christians manipulated and didn't include in the, in the canon. Well, that was because the canon was determined in 200 AD and the, and the books that they're saying we left out were written in the 3 and 400 AD. Uh, there was no purposeful leaving these books out and they wouldn't have passed the tests that they out, you know, the 70 tests that they placed on to be in a canon book anyway. You want to be very careful when you hear these so-called scholars quote things to you and tell you these things out of, you know, and not, not give proofs for, for why, what, it, what they're saying. We want to be very careful when, when people challenge things and, you know, my, my answer quite often is, okay, what is your proof? Where, you know, how are you proving this? In preparation for this Sunday, I was reading a, an evolutionist answer to creationist arguments. And most of his arguments went, well, uh, his argument against spontaneous uh, generation of life was that Pasteur did not prove that life could never have spontaneously generated, but only that it can't spontaneously generate now in today's circumstances. He goes, it is quite possible that sometime in the long, long past, things were so different that life might have spontaneously generated. Okay, and I look at that and I'm going, and they accuse us of having a lot of faith. Yeah. Okay, the laws of science say it can't happen, but maybe sometime, somewhere far back, the laws were different. Yeah, but all of his arguments, everything he argued was on that kind of logic. It wasn't a, here's a scientific experiment that says this was wrong. So we want to be careful when we look at these things and be careful that we're really saying, what are they saying? What are they doing? And make sure that they're telling the truth. Well, the biggest thing is that people want to believe it, and when they want to believe it, they'll grab onto the, the, the smallest straw they can find. If uh, we get rid of God, then spontaneous generation has to have happened, and if it has to have happened, then, it, then there had to be something different back there. Even though we can't prove it, we, we have no scientific proof of it, it had to have happened, so therefore we're going to grab hold of the idea that it had to have happened, even though science says it can't. So, and this is what happens all the time out there with, the, with them. Look at verse 3 as we go forward here. This starts one of the great prayers that is recorded in the Bible. Nehemiah is one of them. Ezra gave a great one. But this is one of the great prayers in the Bible. And we're going to look at this one. And I want to point out to you, 38 times Daniel is going to use we, us, our... Uh, and he's going to say basically that he's as big a sinner as any of them, and he's, which is really amazing because in the scriptures he's one of only three people that nothing negative is said. One being Jesus, and then jo uh, Joseph and, and, and Daniel. There's nothing negative said about them in the scriptures. 
And then we read this prayer, and if, you, if this was the only thing you knew about his life, you would think he was the most awful, awful person that ever existed on the, on the face of the earth. But he is, as a righteous, basically he's acting as a priest. Even though he's not a priest, he's acting as the priest and identifying with the people in this prayer. So we're going to look at this prayer as, as we go in verse 3. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I just want to point out on this, this really indicates that this is not just a one-time prayer. Because it says he's been doing this with fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So this is not something that is just one time. I think it's just one view of his prayer or a composite prayer that he, that he puts together. Verse 4, And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and made my confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him, and to them that keep his commandments. So he starts out with this very beautiful, God, you keep your word, you keep your covenant. This is the greatest truth that we have, is that God keeps his word. Why does he keep his word? Because he's truth. God will never ever lie. And this is something that we really want to grab hold of. When God says something in the scripture, we can grab hold of it and know it's true, but let's make sure that we're getting it right. Because you know, in the, in the Pentateuch, we could say, God says he's going to bless us. Well, yes, but there's a caveat there. He says, if you obey, he blesses. And if you stopped at that point and, and kind of left out the if, you're going to think you get blessed by God all the time. But he says, if you disobey, you get punished. So this is one thing I caution people when they go, well, I read this in the Bible. and Listen to what God, it says that God's going to do this. I go, yeah, but let's read the last part of that chapter, that, that chapter that you were reading. You only read the blessing part for obedience. And God is very clear. And this is why we know that Israel is a blessed country because it was unconditional. He said to Abraham, I will bless you. And Abraham never had a caveat in there saying that you needed that he had to be uh, obedient to God to be blessed. And it says, "I will those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse." And he goes, "And your seed." So the promise of Abraham is an unconditional promise. Our salvation is an unconditional promise. If we come to him, he accepts us. If we don't come to him, he doesn't accept us. But once we come to him, we are accepted. For all that is involved in that acceptance, being a new creation, uh, becoming saints, being unbound from sin, all of that. And here Daniel is making that same confession. You keep your covenants and your mercies to those that love you. And so he's starting out with this, and that keep your commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned and have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled by, even by departing from the precepts and from your judgments. Here, here Daniel's continuing, to, continuing the message. And he had read Daniel, and Daniel said they were going to be cast for 70 years into, the, into bondage. And does anybody remember why, that, that, why it was 70 years? We're going to go to Second Chronicles, <laughs> chapter 36. Uh, starting at verse 20. And them that had escaped the sword carried he away into Babylon where they, where they were servants to him and the sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths 
And for as long as she had laid desolate, she, she kept her Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The, the children of Israel, every seventh year, was supposed to let the land rest. They were in their promised land for 490 years, and they had not kept the, the Sabbath rest of the land. So God says, you were disobedient for 490 years. You skipped 70 years for the land to rest. I'm going to send you in captivity, and the land will rest for 70 years. Okay? So that is why they were in captivity for 70 years. They had 70 years of disobedience to make up for. And God, and that, so we're trying to tie this all together so that we understand why it was 70 years. It was 70 years because they were disobedient for 490 years and had not given the land its rest. So he's saying, you know, we have sinned. We, were, we committed iniquity. He's really identifying what iniquity. You know, we didn't obey you. We, we didn't, you know, in this particular case, we didn't let the land rest. And he's also probably thinking about all the idols and everything that his, his father and uncles and everybody worshipped when he was in Israel. Because he's remembering he was a crowned prince as well. He was one of the royal line of Israel. So he's looking at those last few kings of, of Judah were very wicked. They were establishing idolatry worship again. And so it's amazing that Daniel is the righteous man that he is because of the idolatry of his family at that time. And possibly, I don't know how close he was to the crown because it never tells us how close he was, but you know, if he hadn't been judged, maybe he could have been king of, Israel, of, of Judah. But God had other plans for judgment and bringing all of this about. So we see he's saying, we sinned, we've committed iniquity, we have done wickedly, we have rebelled, even from departing from your precepts and from your judgments, from your commandments, your teachings. Okay? So he says, we, we ignored your word, now we're, we got punished, and now it's time to go back home. And, and he's going, okay, we disobeyed. You said we'd get in trouble if we disobeyed. We got in trouble, but you also said we were returning. And he's looking at how old he is. So at this point, he's probably in his 80s because it's almost 70 years. He came as a teenager. So he's somewhere in his early 80s, early to mid-80s at this time. So he's a very old man. And he's looking back and saying, oh, reading. Can you imagine how exciting he was getting with God at this time? You know, we're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Oh, and all of a sudden he realizes it's been said it's almost 70 years. <laughs> Can you imagine you having that plane where something so plain and clear and obvious stands in front of you and says, oh, here's God's answer. This is God's answer that we're going to go back home. And at his age, he knew he wasn't going back home. That was a long, arduous trip to go back to Israel. And and it doesn't indicate that he ever went back uh, to, to Israel when they went back. And besides which, for him, there was nothing to go back to. They, Jerusalem is in ruins, as you remember from Ezra and Nehemiah. The, the, the tabernacle's been torn down. The walls are torn down. The, the poorest of the poor have been living there. So there, there haven't been any care for the houses that are there. And so he's looking at it saying, it's time for the people to go back. And it's going to be hard work. It's going to be hard work when they go back. And so we see all of this. Verse 6, Neither have we hearkened unto your servants, the prophets, which spake in your, in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to do all and to all the people of the land. So he's thinking back. He's thinking he's been reading the book of Jeremiah, obviously. He's thinking back. 
Here is what Jeremiah said. They didn't listen to him. He's probably thinking back to the other prophets that spoke at that same time period and saying, oh, they didn't listen to them either. God, hopefully they're ready to listen. We've been, we've been wicked. We've been disobedient. And this goes back to the Chronicles verse. It says, if my people who are called by my name shall call upon my name, I shall hear them. You know, God says he starts with his people. When it's time for something to happen with God, for a revival, for a course correction, it starts with his people bowing their knee and saying, God, we are sinners. This, this country is, and I'm identifying because I'm one of this country. We have sinned. We, we repent. And we start with the house of God coming to him and, and repenting. And Daniel is definitely doing that. God, it's us. It's our leaders. It's all of us. I'm part of this group. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just them. You know, this prayer could have just as easily have been, you know, uh, neither have they hearkened unto your servant, the prophets, which spoke to, to our kings. Our, you know, but he identifies so many times with the us and we that we see in this. And so we, we look at this, and he's saying, we didn't listen. You sent prophets to us and we didn't listen we didn't obey we didn't change you over and over and then we were disciplined and this is so true that we need to start at the house of God and make decisions to follow God and this is why this prayer is this has been the, the pressing thing from a lot of people that we hear from from the Christian world the church needs to get on its knees if we want to see any change and Unfortunately, a lot of times when you talk to Christians, they go, well, it's not our fault. We've been trying to follow God. You know, <laughs> get on your knees like the word says and confess because we need to do things. Now, unfortunately, a lot of what America is going through is the church's fault because in the, in the 1800s and early 1900s, the church pulled away from government and decided we're not going to vote because it's secular. You know, don't go out and don't apply your godly principles. And we look at what we've gotten from that decision from the past. And we need to bring God in. And it just might just be too late. I don't know. But we need to pray because it is close. The end, the end of this country is on, on the very precipice of where we're at at this moment. And it can go either way. We can go into a revival or we can go into the punishment that Daniel is at the end of his, for his country. So we look at this and it says, verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs unto you, but unto us confusion of face as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all of Israel that are near and that are far off and are through all the countries whither you have driven them because of their trespass that they have trespassed against you. So he says, God, you're righteous, but unto us is confusion or shame would be a better word shame of face because of their disobedience and it says we deserve this we deserve to be shamed you know those that are near he's talking now in this case they're in the capital of babylon <laughs> and those that are far off all the way out toward india and those that are all over the place you know because they were scattered they were scattered all through the babylonian empire remember the babylonian empire when we talked about it spans all the way to india all the way up to the what we call Turkey today, all through the Mesopotamian Valley, down toward Egypt. I mean, it was a very large country, and they scattered the Jews all through their country, all through their empire. 
And it says, why? Because they trespassed. They did wrong. They did treacherous acts. That's what trespass means, to do treacherous acts. And what acts did they do? They raised up idols. They quit worshiping God at the temple. They, they, every time God said, don't rebel, they rebelled. Uh, Jeremiah kept telling the kings, don't rebel against Babylon. And they went out and tried to make a league with Egypt. And Egypt got destroyed, and then they destroyed, destroyed Judah. Uh, it was just one of those things. Every time they turned around, they would not listen to the prophets that came to them. And they ended up being disciplined for it. And Daniel's recognizing this. Daniel has spent time in the prophets. He, he understands and this is something that for us as Christians, we need to be very sure of, that we study not just our favorite verses. And this happens, to, a lot of pastors will do this at times. They will teach their favorite verses, and if you spend any time in their church, you find the same set of, you know, same set of scriptures keep, be, keep propping up all the time, and, then, you know, and there's all these books that they never even touch, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, it, uh, it, a man that I like, you know, he just commented the other day, he was teaching the, the minor prophets, uh, going through the minor prophets, and he says it's the first time he's done it in 30 years of ministry. Okay? And there's so much in the minor prophets that if you don't go and look at the minor prophets, you don't understand a lot of what's going on today and going on in the future. So this is why I go book by book, in chapter by chapter, so that we'll go through the whole Bible eventually, and then if God keeps me here, we'll start all over again and go back through the Bible again. But there's so much in there, and Daniel understood these things. He had gone into these other, other books. He had looked at the, at the minor prophets, what we call the minor prophets. Uh, he hadn't spent his entire time in just the first five books of Moses. He had been into the prophets. He was looking into what has God got in store for us. And, of course, he's writing one of the books that are going to be part of the Bible, but he doesn't know that. Uh, and, you know, the good thing about the, the book of Daniel is, and especially as we get into, the, when we do get to the 70 weeks of Daniel, this book was written into the Septuagint, which we know that the date of the Septuagint was 300 years before Jesus. And so people will oftentimes try to say, well, this book was written after Jesus because look how the accuracy of how much he how accurate he predicted all, all the future events. And we go, no, it's a translated into the Septuagint 300 years before Jesus was born, during the times of the Greek. The Romans weren't even an empire yet. So look at the way God protected one of the most accurate books of foretelling the future in, in, clear, in clarity. He made sure that they couldn't say it happened after the fact by making sure that it had a dead pinpointed date that it says this is when it was translated. And that's, they can't get around that. And that's why Daniel drives the skeptics crazy because all of a sudden they've got a book that predicts the future very accurately that has a definite date before everything happened and they're going, this just can't happen. And yet it did. So God protected. And God does this so much for us. He protects his word. He protects what he does and he ties things together and he brings other books involved. You know, there, are, there are people that want to tell you that Jesus never existed. You know, but all you gotta do is get into the Roman documents and you see Jesus in it. You know, Josephus, a non-Christian author, talked about Jesus. You know, he was not a Christian, he didn't like Christianity and yet he admitted that Jesus, now he, had, he didn't have a very flattering definition for Jesus, he called him a conjurer and a and a deceiver and a trickster, 
but he admitted that Jesus came and that he did things that people took to be miracles. Now, he, he basically said he was a cheat and, a, and all of that, but, but by the same token, he was, he's a prover that Jesus did things and that he did what people considered to be miracles. Okay, and we, and we have different other articles from the Romans that talk about this troublemaker in, in, in Israel that's causing problems with the, the local government, you know, but he's not against us, so we're leaving him alone. You know, all these different things that are, are documented. So we look in here and we say, God protects, he builds up, he has historical. This is the great thing about our scriptures is we can look at other sources and see that they're true. It's not like other books that say, well, this is our book, don't examine it too closely because you know, it may not hold up. You know, and you look at it and it doesn't hold up to historical accuracy, it doesn't, well, you're not supposed to look at it that close, it's just our spiritual book. We say, go ahead and look at our book. The greatest miracle that happened is people who are very skeptical, as long as they're honest, have gone back into the scriptures to try to disprove it and find out that it, that it is very provable and go, wow, it's real, so therefore maybe its message is real, and they end up coming to Christ. Uh, many of our top apologists had done this. Josh McDowell, you know, of my generation, went in and his, he went in to purposely disprove the Bible and came out realizing that it was true and therefore there was a God and if there was a God we had to follow his rules and then he decided to become a Christian. Uh, our, our one of our newest newest one is uh, the one who wrote uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't remember his name but anyway he's written a lot of books now on, on the veracity of the scriptures and he's done it as a researcher, as a newspaper researcher an invest, investigative journalist, and he's gone back and talked to people and said, well, okay, yes, this person says it's true, this, you know, and that's how he became a Christian. He was trying to disprove the Bible because his wife had got so excited about God and the Bible. Least horrible, yes. <laughs> uh, trying to disprove the Bible because his wife was becoming a fanatic and he ends up getting saved. You know, we see this over and over again when people with an honest research go into the scriptures to try to disprove it, they, find, they come away saying, oh, it's got to be true. And our scriptures hold up. They stand up to the to time. When, you, when archaeologists dig where the Bible says things happen, they find the Bible is true. For years, they didn't think David existed because they had never found any record of him other than in the Bible. And some 30, 40 years ago, they dug in... They dug up this whole bunch of records of David, King David, and found out they matched the Bible. Uh, you know, it holds up to scrutiny. It's not like many of these other books. Uh, you look at the Book of Mormon, it is supposed to be a divine book. Well, they've lost the, the plates and everything that it was supposed to have come from. You can't verify that that book was written from anything because you don't have them. Uh, so, you know, we look at the Quran, and the Quran does not, is full of historical inaccuracies, and yet they'll say it's a divine book that's true. Okay, and this is why I say over and over, this book, if it's not true, we're in trouble. We're betting our eternity on it. It has got to be true. It has got to be 100% accurate. It's not just a book of spiritual stories that you can, can put your believe or not believe because they're not, you know, they're not important. It is important that they are true. It's important that there was 
an exodus from Egypt where, where Egypt fell from a power. And there is a point in their history as an empire when they fell from power and were taken over by invaders from the north because they had been so militarily weak. Why were they military weak? History doesn't tell you, but they drowned in the Red Sea according to the scriptures. And then they were conquered thereafter. Uh, but we look at these things and we say, here's the truth, here's the, here's the information. So we look at these things. Uh, one, of, one of the uh, atheist sites I was looking at, they go, well, there's all these stories about grass growing up in a day and withering by night. They go, those are obviously not true. And I was laughing my head off because we live in the desert. We see plants all the time come to full blossom in a day and die by nighttime because it got so hot. And it's like, you obviously live in some city where you've never been in a desert to see these plants bloom and, and die in a day. You know, and you, and you, we see these things, we go, how many times do speak, people speak without knowing what they're talking about? And it's so often. And we want to be careful as Christians that we don't speak from things we don't know about. Because we can do the same thing ourselves in trying to defend. I've heard some really silly defenses for the scriptures, you know, that people will say. And I'm going, why would you even say something like that? You don't have to go doing these mental gymnastics to defend, defend the word of God. And we see that kind of stuff happening. Let's see, verse 8. O Lord, to us belong confusion of face, and to our kings, and to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed his, the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, his prophets. So he's saying we don't deserve it, but God is given us mercy. He's forgiven us. Because remember, when we read Jeremiah, it didn't say anything about you're going to go there in 70 years until you repent. It says you will be there for 70 years. Straight up. No, no you have to repent. No, you, none of this you have to get right. And here Daniel's saying, it's your mercy. It's your forgiveness. Even though we're still rebellious, and he knew his people were still rebellious, they weren't following God. Matter of fact, many of them were kind of mad at God. You know, he'd, he'd taken them out of Israel. He'd allowed Jerusalem to be taken. And then even to this day, the Jews speak very highly of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, in their mind, even though they're atheistic for the most part, the city of God. And it was even worse back then. They, they believed that nobody could take Jerusalem because it was God's city. And before Jerusalem, in, in Joshua and in, in Judges' time, they believed that wherever the ark was, if the ark went into battle, they were undefeatable because the, the ark was the talisman that they took with them. Now, we've got the ark of God. Nobody can conquer us. Which is why when the ark of God went into the captivity with the Philistines in a battle that they lost, it devastated them. This was, this was the unbeatable ark of God. God's presence was there. How could we lose the battle? Yeah. Now we know, if you know the story, the, they put it in the, the temple of Dagon and Dagon bowed down to the ark and they put, propped Dagon back up and he they fell back down, they propped him back up, he fell down and his hands and heads were taken off. Uh, you know, God, God still, and then he cursed, the, he cursed each city they put it in, and they, they sent it back to Israel. <laughs> Get rid of this thing. You know, it's, it's not, we don't want this. 
you know, we conquered it in battle, but this is not, you know, we don't want this thing around. Yeah. But this is the way they thought. The, 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 the Ark of the Covenant was unbeatable. Jerusalem was unbeatable because it was God's city. The temple was there. Nobody can take the temple. And then to lose it was a, really devastated them. And really broke the faith of a lot of people because their faith wasn't in God. It was in the, in the, in the city and in the temple and in the activities of the religious activities, but not God himself. And there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians who are not having their faith in God. They're having their faith in Christianity. Now, let me live the way of Christ. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll do, I'll do all these things that make it look like I'm a Christian. I, I'll have this righteousness because of everything I do, but they don't have the relationship with God. And then when something bad happens to them, it's like, well, I was doing everything I was supposed to do. How can, how can this have happened to me? The same thing the Jews in Daniel's day are feeling. Well, we did, you know, we were... We had the temple, and we went there. We went there, you know, five times a year, whether we wanted to or not. Uh, why? Why would God let this happen to us? Well, it might have something to do with bowing down to, to Baal and Baalim and Ashtoreth and all these other gods that you were bowing down to. But uh, we see this. We see this oftentimes with people who claim to be Christians and, and don't really know Jesus. And this is the most important. It's a, a matter of knowing Him and having a relationship with him that protects and, and guides and leads us. And Daniel's saying, you know, you're merciful. You're merciful. We still don't deserve it. But, you know, we don't deserve it, but you said we're returning in 70 years, and I'm looking forward to this, but I'm going to, because the people aren't going to do it, I'm going to confess our sins. Daniel says, I'm part of the king's family. I'm going to confess the sin. I'm going to confess the sins of my fathers, my, the, the priest and all of my people. I'm going to confess. And I'm not sure, but he may have had he may have had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know those guys around with him. You know he probably had some people with him on these prayers. You know saying, we need to we need to put me on, on our face before God. We need to come before God because it's time to go back home, and our people need to repent. Because even though God didn't tell them they needed to repent before they went back, He knew that if they didn't repent, they were going to start the cycle all over again, and be sent into judgment again. Verse 11, Yea, all Israel have transgressed your law, even by departing, that they might not obey the, your, your voice. Thereupon the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that was written in the law of Moses, the servant of your God, because we have sinned against him. So again, we're having a reference to another story, another, another Bible information that he knows. Okay? In this case, he's referring all the way back to Moses. And this goes to that whole thing of if you obey, you will be blessed. If you do not obey, you will not be blessed. And he might have been thinking specifically Deuteronomy 28. And we are not going to read the whole section because the curse lasts for some 30 verses. Uh, but I kind of highlighted a few of them. In, in verse 28, uh, chapter 28, it starts out in verse 17. Your basket and your store shall be cursed. 18, the fruit of your body shall be cursed, so your very children will be cursed. Uh, verse 21, pestilence shall cleave unto you, sicknesses that will just be part of who you are. Verse 24, your, the rain on your land will be powder. You won't even be, 
worth anything. It won't, it won't uh, be of any uh, benefit. Verse 25, you shall be smitten by your enemies. Verse 26, your carcasses shall be meat to the fowls of the air. Verse 29, you shall be smitten with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, or that idea of uh, being unsure in your heart. Uh, verse 30, you shall build a house and another shall dwell in it. 31, your ox shall be slain before your eyes. 32, your, your sons and your daughters will be given to other people. Uh, he keeps going on and on. You know, verse 38, you'll carry out much seed in the field and you'll get little back, uh, which is not what you do when you're going to go farming. You expect to get more than you planted. Uh, 45 says, you shall be destroyed. And then... Verse 60 and 61, I'll read those verses in entirety. Moreover, he will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt which you were afraid of, and, you, and they shall cleave unto you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in, the, in this book of the law, then will the Lord bring upon you until you be destroyed. So when you disobey, you are going to get everything the Bible talked about. And then he says, and if that's not enough, and it should have been enough just there, you're going to get things that aren't even in this book. Okay, Daniel's thinking about this as he's writing this out. He's saying, you've poured the curse upon us. We deserved it, and you poured it out on us, and we need to repent. Otherwise, it's going to continue. It's amazing how much Daniel knows about the scriptures, because if you look at his pedigree, you know, if you get into the, in the, in the Chronicles and, and Kings, you see these kings that were his parents were not righteous people. And yet he has a great righteousness. All the way from the beginning as a teenager, he's saying, I'm not going to eat food that God told me I can't eat. I just can't do this. Test it and see if God is going to protect me. You know, I'm, I'm going to be honest to God. I'm, and with, at the beginning of Darius's reign, he, he prayed to God, even though it was not allowed. And because he says, I'm going to honor God. I'm going, basically, he says what the disciples say, I'm, I'm going to obey God rather than man. The man may want to send me into the dying's den, but I'm still going to pray to God. And this is the type of man Daniel is. Why did they make this law that says you couldn't pray? Because they examined his life and couldn't find anything wrong with him. You know, and we talked about that when we were doing that story about Daniel in the lion's den. Can you imagine any one of our politicians at just about any level being watched for a month or more and somebody not finding anything wrong they're not stealing. They're not. They're not getting anything from the from the government. They're not taking kickbacks. They're not making laws that make their line their own pockets. And they go to Daniel, and they can't find anything wrong with him as they closely examined his life. No skeletons in the closet. And here he's saying, God, this is what people are doing. I need you. We're asking you to bless them, even though we don't deserve this. We got what we deserved. You told us it was coming. You told us it was coming. You told us all the way back at Moses. And by the way, Jeremiah, the last prophet of, of those kings, told us. And we didn't listen. And he's, you know, he's understanding. Verse 28, And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing us upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven has not been done unto us, has been done unto Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made, us, made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might be turned from our iniquities and understand in truth. 
So again, he's going on. You know, we got what we deserve. We we wouldn't we would not repent. We got what it deserved. And here he's bringing in a very interesting note that he understood. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people have been removed from their land. And they're going to go back. This is an amazing thing about Israel. Israel has been removed from its land twice in their history. Once for Babylon, where they were removed and returned. And once in 70 AD, when the Romans dispersed them and destroyed them and, and dispersed them and removed them from their land. And they returned in 1948 to become a nation again. There is no other nation. There may be a nation or two out there that has returned once from being removed from their land. But there's no nation out there that has returned twice from being removed from their land. And I don't even know if there's one that's been, that's been, been uh, restored after having been totally removed from their land. And Israel's done it twice because of God. Because God says, I'm not going to let my people not have their land that I promised them. He promised them their land, and he's given it back to them now twice. Because remember, the, there were a the handful of Jews that were left, the poorest of the poor, and they intermingled with the, the local population, and that produced the Samaritans. When the Jews came back to the land and saw the Samaritans had interbred with the local population, they rejected the Samaritans and called them half-breeds, which is why in Jesus' day, nobody, no Jew went through Samaria. They were not worth, they were so despised by the people that they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And any time a Jew would have to go from the southern part, which is where Jerusalem was, to the northern part of Israel, Samaria lay right in the center of their land. To get there, they would, the short way was to go through Samaria. It would cut days off their trip. But to get to the north, they would go all the way to the Mediterranean, up north, and come back all the way across the country again. Or they would go all the way to the Jordan River, go north, and come back over. They would not go through Samaria unless time was extremely important to them. And then they would get through Samaria as fast as they could, not talking to anybody. Okay, so when Jesus went through Samaria and talked to the woman at the well in the Samaritan village, he violated all kinds of rules that the Jews had. None biblical, but all kinds of rules that the Jews had. Number one, going through Jerusalem when he did, uh, going through Samaria when he didn't have to, and then talking to a Samaritan. You know, and then not only talking to her, but talking to the whole village when she brought everybody to him saying, I've met the Messiah. And he talked to the whole village. To, the, to any Jew looking at him, this was not something that was done. It was not right. It was not proper. And he's violating all these rules. But why did, why did they have that the Samaritans were these half-breeds that, that existed, that had forgotten God when, they, when the Jews had been exiled? And that's why they were not welcome. That's why they were not, not considered as, as as Jews. Verse 14, Wherefore has the Lord watched upon on the evil and brought it upon us? For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he does, and for we obeyed not his voice. And I love this. Daniel says, we deserve it, but God is righteous. 
He has the right to do what he wants. He understands from the king's perspective, if the servants disobey and you punish the servants, it is the king's right to punish the servants. And so he's understanding, we disobeyed, we deserve the punishment, and he is right and good in punishing us. And how many times do we, even as Christians ourselves, don't really think that when we, have, when we suffer for our disobedience, our question is, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? I only did a little sin, and we usually won't even admit that we did a little sin. God, you're, you're letting all this bad stuff happen to me, and I didn't do anything except this, 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 and this, and wonder why we're being punished. And here Daniel is saying, God, you, you're, you're right. You're the king. You're the sovereign. You, there's nothing wrong with you to di uh, discipline us for our disobedience. He understands and he's admitting this. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, you have brought your people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have gotten your, your, your renown. As of this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. So he's going all the way back to all the way back to the deliverance of Egypt. God, you did a great thing in bringing us out, and and we and that wasn't even enough to keep us. Matter of fact, that wasn't even enough to keep the, the children of Israel when Moses was with them. Okay, and it's still not. When Daniel's looking back on it, it's still not enough to keep them. You know, so he, he's going back. He's going over the history history of God. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your Fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, from your holy mountain because of our sin and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, O our God, hear our prayer of your servant and his supplication and cause your face to shine upon this, your, your sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Okay, God, let your light, let your face shine. Let, let your... Let your look be positive toward, and look at this, who he's saying, not toward the people who don't deserve it, but toward Jerusalem and your sanctuary. He's saying, your sanctuary and your city did not deserve to be destroyed because of the people. So for their sake, not for the people's sake, but for their sake, the land has had its rest now. Let the people return. Let the people return, and for their sake. Verse 18, O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolation and the city which was called by your name, for we do not present our supplication before you for our righteousness, but for your great mercy. God is not for us. Nothing that we did, we don't deserve it, but because you are merciful. How often is that our prayer? God, I don't deserve anything you've given me, but thank you for it. Thank you for the blessings you're going to give me. Because if we start thinking we deserve his blessings, <laughs> we're in for trouble. The day we start thinking that we deserve it, that we've earned it, that it's, that it's something God has to give us, God will step back and say, okay, let's just see what life's like without my blessings that are my gift, my mercies, my grace to you. Let's see how you can handle it. And verse 19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken, and do not, and defer not. For your own sake, O God, and for your city and for your people, we are called by your name. God, listen. It's 70 years, God. Listen, don't, don't, don't delay. We're called by your name. And one of the, one, I heard one, one teacher say that this is called the interrupted prayer. And we're going to stop at this point because at this point afterwards, the prayer is interrupted. 
Gabriel the angel touches him and says, I have a message for you. In the middle of his prayer, Gabriel comes and says, I've got a message. And we're going to stop here because we're not going to have time to get into the message. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us, your care for us, that you are merciful to us, that you do love us so much, and that you want to see us be blessed because of your grace and mercy, not anything that we do. We ask that you go with us and help us to be humble and, re and, and be willing to humble ourselves for our nation and come before you in your son's name. Amen.